Our scripture reading, our New Testament lesson, comes to us today from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This Lord's Day, we will be talking about the defeat of death, the death of death. This is, of course, a great theme in 1 Corinthians 15. And so today we will read uh, verses 12 through 28. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope In this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection... It is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. We will recite together Lord's Day 16, which is questions 40 through 44 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Dear Christian, Why did Christ have to suffer death? Because God's justice and truth require it. Nothing else could pay for our sins except the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testifies that he really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but only a dying to sins and an entering into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? By his power, our old man is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. Why does the creed add, he descended to hell? To assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul, 
on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. Brothers and sisters, we've all in our lives been touched, whether near or far, by death. You've probably heard me say before that I grew up going to a lot of funerals. My mother always drug me to funerals. I remember being very young and sitting there, singing the hymns, remembering family. And perhaps, in light of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, there's not much more important to the Christian faith than its teaching on death. One only need think of Paul's words. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, he writes. Apart from Christianity's teaching on the defeat of death, it seems that the Apostle Paul suggests to us that it is hardly worth believing. And so in this Lord's Day, we take up something very central to our faith, something very central to this section of the Catechism. We're going to focus on Christ's death and how it applies to us. This is a major aspect of our Christian lives. And it's imperative to understand this, to understand the comfort of the gospel, the assurance that we receive in the forgiveness of our sins and what that means for us. So we're going to look at a few things. We're not just going to go through the catechism questions in order, as I often do. But we're going to look at a few different pieces of this and not exactly in order. First, we're going to look at how our debt requires Christ's death, something we've already covered. But especially here as it's applied in this Lord's Day and in the scriptures. Then we'll jump down to question 43. We will talk about the other benefits of Christ's death. And finally, we will talk about how Christ's death and our death relate One of the first things we confess together in this Lord's Day in question 40 is the necessity of this sacrifice, of Christ's death. Paul, of course, earlier in 1 Corinthians, in the very first chapter, reminds us of how central the cross of Christ is. Beginning in verse 17 of chapter 1, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not go know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly of what we preach. To save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The cross, this sacrifice, why does Christ have to suffer death? It's the wisdom of God addressing our sins. For those who are called, we see this wisdom. 
It seems like folly to the world. And when Paul in other places will talk, even just a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 30, he will talk about Christ being the redemption. He's applying this idea of the cross as the wisdom of God to be the redemption from sins. Verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. We can think also of Romans 3, talks about Christ as our redemption. And the word redemption is this word that means a release. It was originally used of captives or slaves who paid for their freedom. And this meaning continues into our New Testament. The freedom, the release that we have in Christ is because of the payment he made on the cross. This is central to this Lord's Day, this idea of a payment for sins. It's in the background of a number of these questions. And we must not miss the significance of this teaching. Perhaps you recall we've sung earlier and we've confessed earlier in earlier Lord's Days about how creatures cannot ransom, redeem the life of another. Like Psalm 49 Truly no man can ransom another another, or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. This idea of a ransom, this teaching from Psalm 49 is in the background because Paul's contention is that Christ has done just this. He's ransomed the life of another. He's paid the costly price. And that we will live forever and never see the pit. And so to rightly understand the wisdom, the grace, the redemption of God, of us by God, that's placarded before us, as Paul will say in Galatians, on the cross, we must understand why it was necessary. It's a payment. It's a payment for what we owe. Christ and his perfect obedience and his sacrificial death paid a price he didn't know, he paid a price we owe. And this was done on the cross with cosmic ramifications. We see the temple veil being torn, darkness blanketing the sky. The day of the Lord was visited upon Christ in that moment. And so Christ redeemed us. He purchased us by his blood. This is exactly what Paul says in Acts 20 when he's preaching to the Ephesian elders. God purchased you with his own blood. And so the cross is this necessary event. Why did Christ have to suffer death? Because God's justice and truth require it, and our debt was so great, nothing else could pay for it. And before we move on, I want to briefly consider under this point questions 41 and 44. As the Catechism points us in question 41, rather, why was he buried? Well, his burial testifies that he really died. The burial is a confirmation of the reality of this. Christ went into a real grave. It was covered with a real stone, hewn from mountains. This is not a stone from a fairy tale. It's one hewn out of a real rock. It's not as though when we look at this in the New Testament, it is just a story, or it's just words. 
This is a reality. This is historical. Christ was laid in a grave following a brutal death on the cross. And then we also confess in our creed, which we're examining here together through the Heidelberg Catechism, that he descended to hell. And as I was studying this past week, one of the things that uh, I discovered was the German doesn't actually say descent into hell. It says to the realm of the dead. Doesn't necessarily give us any more insight onto what this means. But what is meant here, or by the Latin when it says ad inferna, to Hades, to hell? Our catechism author suggests that if it means that he died, it's redundant. We already have a confession that he was buried, and his burial testifies that he really died. And if it means, on the other hand, that he went into some form of limbo, or the realm of the dead, or Hades, that he harrowed hell as some teach, then Christ's words to the thief on the cross are hardly true. Today you will be with me in paradise. His words, his last words, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit, are hardly true if he is not committing his spirit to the Father, but harrowing hell. And so our catechism author suggests rightly, and it's reflected here in our catechism, that Christ suffered hell on the cross. Unspeakable fear, pain, and terror. He suffered in his soul and in his body as we sing Around Easter, Good Friday, he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Christ was stripped, beaten, paraded, nailed to a cross. He paid the penalty he did not owe. He sensed the wrath of God towards sin, our sin. And so he descended not into some physical, metaphysical, or spiritual realm, but Christ descended into the torment, which we owed, and he did so in our place. He paid our penalty. That's why we confess this in question 44 as well. We see in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, this written of Christ. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Christ tasted death for you and I in our place. And this has benefits, not just that he paid the price, but drawing on passages like Romans 6, our catechism summarizes some of the other benefits of Christ's death. In Romans 6, Paul writes, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Christ's death and resurrection, which we are united to in our baptism, has benefits. First, as our catechism points out, it crucifies the old man. The old man is put to death, right? Again, And the next verse in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Why? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
Or Paul writes again in Colossians, it's not just in Romans. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Because of Christ's work on the cross, because of his death, our old man is put to death. The Christian can, in this life, though not perfectly, as we will confess later, resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. Christ has put the old man and the old world to death on the cross in order to bring new life. Our sin has been crucified with Christ. We have been made alive together with him. This is a great benefit in our union with Christ. It's not just that he paid our price, but that he brings to us new life by his spirit. And this new life enables us to offer ourselves as thanksgiving sacrifices. And this is not unrelated to the idea of paying a debt. As I've said, it's running throughout all of these questions. We believe in the priesthood of all believers, right? We offer ourselves. A major theme of the apostolic preaching is this, not only Romans 12, but even 1 Peter, right? Quoting the Old Testament saying, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness by his marvelous light. What is Peter teaching? He's teaching the priesthood of all believers. You are a royal priesthood. Well, what does that mean? Priests offer sacrifices. But what we're not offering is sacrifices to atone for our sins. Our bodies are not sacrificed as a payment. They're a thank offering of good works. We are consecrated as priests not to atone for our own sins, but to offer ourselves thankfully before God in prayer and in our good works. Because we've been redeemed, because Christ has paid the price, we can do this. Because of that new life, that union with him in resurrection. And so once the debt is paid, our priesthood is not about debt. This means that our obedience is not about paying God something he is owed. Christ has done that. We're being grateful. We're offering thanksgiving sacrifices. We're not bartering with God. If I'm just this good, you'll let me into heaven. No, we point to Christ. Our whole salvation lies in him. But now we can offer ourselves out of gratitude. Christ has paid for our sins. We don't have to do so through sacrifice. And this again, this idea of payment comes up in our final point about our death. As we read in Hebrews 2, right? Christ tasted death for all people. And so we get question 42, one of my favorites in the catechism. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Answer, our death is not a payment for our sins, but only a dying to sins and entering into eternal life. One of the implications of this idea that Christ paid for all of our sins is that he paid for all of our sins and we no longer have to do so. That changes the way we view everything. Changes the way we view death. If Christ 
death is a sufficient payment for sins, then he tasted death and removed its sting, as Paul will teach. Our death is without a sting. It has no victory over us. It is not a payment for our sins. To put that pointedly again, when we die, it's not because we are paying God something he's owed. Our catechism with a firm foot in 1 Corinthians 15 reasons that our death isn't like Christ's. Our death isn't like Christ's. Death doesn't have victory. It doesn't have a sting. Where Christ experienced death's victory and sting over him. For us, death was swallowed up. Isaiah prophesied this. Paul proclaims it. It was swallowed up in the victory of Christ over the grave. We don't experience death the way that he did. Christ tasted the bitterness of death, so we do not have to. And so death is not a payment. We're not dying because we owe anything. But it's a recreation. right? It's an entering into eternal life, as our catechism puts it. In the book of Revelation, you have the first resurrection and the second death. And I'm fairly convinced that these parallel one another. The first resurrection is actually the death of the Christian. When you die, you're raised. It's an irony of the Christian faith. And it's precisely what our catechism is talking about here. When we die, we enter into life. It's the first resurrection. And so, we don't pay for our sins and our death. Instead, we enter into eternal life. We have that comfort. Think about the Christians in the book of Revelation experiencing persecution, hearing these words When you die, you go to be with the Lord. You're raised. You're martyrs sitting under the throne. You may be crying out, How long? but you are in the presence of your Savior. This is a comfort as we face death, as it's touched all of our lives. Losing friends, family, parents, grandparents. We know that death does not have the final word. It has been swallowed up in victory. And then we come back to question 44. Not quite done with it. Why does the creed add he descended into hell? To assure me, during attacks of deepest dread and temptation, that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. The price that Christ paid not only reminds us of how great our sin are, but it assures us when we are afflicted and tempted and suffering and doubting. He did that for me. That's what we can say. He's delivered me from that sort of anguish and torment. Death has no sting. Death has no victory. And so we do not fear the grave that our Savior entered into and hallowed. And then he left it to be with his Father. And in Christ, too, we will leave our graves behind. We will not taste the bitterness of death. We face it in his righteousness and in his victory. And from his payment for our sins, 
And so we face it, not out of fear, but out of longing. We're entering into eternal life. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful God, who by your power and your spirit raised Christ from the dead, you entered into the grave, into our suffering, into the depths of suffering. And you delivered us You delivered us by your sacrifice. You delivered us from the bitterness of the grave. You swallowed up death in victory. We are eternally grateful. We pray that you would assure us by your sacrifice on the cross, by your glorious resurrection, that we do not experience death as something to be feared. It's not a payment for our sins. It is not an entering into suffering, but an entering into our eternal life. We pray that as we struggle, as we suffer, as we go about in a world that is dying and fading away, that you would remind us that we belong to another world, a new creation, that in Christ we are new creations. Anchor that truth in our heart as we look to Christ on the cross suffering so that we do not suffer for death. We pray as well that you would make us grateful and thankful, that we would offer our obedience and our prayers and our own selves as sacrifices, not out of guilt and payment, but out of gratitude, thanksgiving sacrifices. We pray that you would bring to life the new man, put to death the old. We pray all of this In the name of Christ, who stood in our place, and by the Spirit who unites us to him. Amen.